you think you're not creative, it's only because no one has been patient and gentle enough with you to show you how to reconnect with the creativity that was always in you because we all have a child archetype and the child is by nature joyful and exploratory and non-judging. And we all came into the world with that. So we all had it at the beginning. And if we're out of touch with it now, we can get back in touch with it again. There are a lot of things I want to share with you about our guest Jane Dunnewald today. Jane is a tender-hearted and fierce creative soul. Generous and kind, over her years as an artist, she has cultivated an understanding of what she refers to as the four cornerstones of creativity, which she'll explain to us. Jane has too many accolades and accomplishments to possibly tell you about without taking up the entire episode, so I will share with you some of my favorites. Jane is an internationally acclaimed textile artist and master needleworker who teaches and exhibits all over the world. She has a BA in psychology and religion and almost went into the ministry, which I also ask her about. She has won some very prestigious awards, including the Quilt Japan Prize and the Gold Prize at the Taigo International Textile Exhibition. She developed and chaired the surface design program at the Southwest Craft Center. And she has authored several truly beautiful books on the subject of surface design and eco-printing. But it is her book and online course and community entitled Creative Strength Training that I'm most excited to chat with Jane about today. When Jane originally agreed to do this interview with me, I was truly over the moon, as you can imagine. I ran to my bookcase and the library and pulled out all her books. I pored over them for days preparing all the questions I wanted to ask her. And even though I tried to limit myself to stay within our 45-minute window, our conversation was so good, so interesting, that halfway through, we decided to just keep going and create two episodes for you. Here's part one of my conversation with Jane Dunnewald. Jane, thank you for making the time to chat with us today. I have admired your work for a really long time. and. I do have that sort of fluttery, nervous feeling of when you talk to one of your, <laughs> one of your, your it is a great honor to, to meet with you and to get to chat with you in person today. Well, um, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, it truly feels like my pleasure. Um, but before we get into it, I wanted to take a, a, just a little minute to explain the intention of this podcast for you and for our listeners. Um, for me... As far as I can see, humanity is kind of glitching a little bit. And my take on it is that it's because way too many people around the world subscribe to what I think you've called fatalistic thinking around creativity, which is this sort of idea that most people seem to believe that when it comes to creativity, you either got it or you don't. And there are certain people who get it and have access to it, and, and they're, and, but not everybody. And I've come to believe just through my own journey that these beliefs are tragic and not true. And the root of, I used to think most of, but more, the more I look at it, the more I think it's actually the root of everything that's wrong with the world. Mm -hmm. And so I'm on a personal mission now to disband these negative beliefs and to help people really get that 
every single one of us has not only the capacity to be creative, but maybe even a responsibility to learn how to cultivate that and express it in the world. So you're an incredibly creative person. You've, uh, you're an accomplished teacher and you've won some pretty amazing awards, created art programs at important institutions and developed groundbreaking new techniques, um, specifically in eco-printing, which I wish I could spend a whole episode talking to you about. Maybe we will. Um, so you're quite clearly plugged into creativity. And I thought it was really interesting because in researching for the show, I learned that your father was a pastor and that you were originally headed for divinity school. Yeah. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you managed to change the course of your own trajectory and put yourself so squarely on a path of creativity, given kind of your background and where you came from. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's such a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. Um, and I've got to admit, it was it was not as clearly articulated as it might look on paper. It was more scattershot. Right. And essentially, I was headed for divinity school at the end of my senior year at Baldwin Wallace College in Cleveland, Ohio. And I found myself literally sitting on the floor in the shower stall of the dormitory, crying and feeling completely disconnected from everything, including from myself. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time I sat under that running water for 40 or 50 minutes. And it was the very first time the thought occurred to me, and now remember, I was only 23, that I had been doing everything for what headed toward what my parents had in mind, instead of realizing I could have my own thoughts. And I think that many of us have that sort of of an epiphany when we're around that age, and many of us have no idea what to do with that epiphany. And all I knew was that Divinity School wasn't a good choice for me. It was my father's choice for me. And I decided I'd take a year off. And I went out to Boston, Massachusetts, following a boyfriend who graduated with me. And he went to um, Boston University to study music, an advanced degree in music. And I waited tables for that year and took needlework classes. Uh I already had that kind of a background because I grew up in rural Ohio and I had been in 4-H and I'd learned to sew. And in ninth grade, I stapled the zipper into my skirt and got a (laughs) in home back because I hadn't hadn't figured out yet that a wise woman knows her limitations and sewing is not my forte. I'm dyslexic. It never worked. Anyhow, long story short, I did not go to divinity school. I married the musician. We moved to Texas. It was hugely unsettling to move somewhere so very different from central Ohio 30 years ago. I bet. And the marriage didn't last for very long. And I bounced around. And I finally found myself by necessity as much as by um, intention approaching um, a small city-based art school in San Antonio, where I talked my way into founding a surface design department. And they gave me a couple of rooms and a very low budget. 
And that was the beginning of recognizing that this is where I belong. And it was the beginning of having, which has been true all my life, a wealth of experiences with students who taught me as generously as I taught them. And so that's really where the trajectory began. So, but just as you're saying that, I'm thinking, how did you go from waiting tables and having taken the embroidery classes to having enough ideas to pitch an entire program? At a, like what, with, with the surface design, where was the, what, what, what happened there? What was the, there was some spark that you were interested in the surface design and how did that, where did that come from? Well, before I actually pitched a program, I was an artist in residence. I was fortunate to be invited to be an artist in residence and help in the weaving department. Okay. And so when I helped in the weaving department, then I was able to start exploring at that time, which was very, very uh, early painted fabric and dyeing fabric and how to stencil and how to cut stamps and so I've always been kind of, you know, I study archetypes. Archetypes are symbolic patterns of human behavior. And I have a huge rebel mm-hmm. and I have a huge gambler. And the rebel and the gambler have worked together sometimes in really not so pretty ways. <laughs> I'll talk about those too if you want. Oh, to yeah. We want to hear about that too. But uh, in general, I've never been afraid to jump into something with both feet because the rebel in me always figured I could get out unscathed or relatively unscathed later if it didn't work. And the gambler thought you just have to keep throwing it at the wall to see if it'll stick. And so I, when I was still the, the uh, artist in residence, I proposed that I start a little class, little class, see how we dismiss ourselves in carving stamps and making stencils. And that was really popular. And people liked me because I admitted I wasn't perfect. And I didn't, most of the time I was, I was never as beginner as they were because I had done it the night before. (laughs) That's enough. (laughs) (laughs) And so it gave me an opportunity to answer your question more directly, to learn a lot about surface design processes, which were relatively undiscovered at that point. And by the time I was confident enough and desperate enough to screw up my rebel courage and go to the director, the new director, and say, hey, have you noticed that surface design and the Surface Design Association, they're a really big deal right now, and you don't have any of that here. And I could make that happen. And he said, okay, $10,000 a year and two rooms upstairs. Wow. So that's how it started. That's very cool. But so leading up to that, if in your experiences as an artist, I, I guess I want to talk a little bit about flow state. Um, mm-hmm. And I was listening to this interview. I think it's maybe about five years old. It was Dan Rather talking to Neil Young about creativity and flow state and what happens. And Neil Young was saying that he has this moment right before he knows he's about to go in to a flow state where he can feel cold air coming in through his nostrils and he just knows it's coming. I just get the chills telling you that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a, another teacher who, who talks about how she has the experience of her cells shifting. I don't know what that feels like to her, but she's, I've heard her say that over and over again. Do you, did you, were you having moments like that when you, with your art at that point, do you, like flow state moments and do you experience them and what do they feel like? for you? Yeah. Oh, I certainly do experience them. And for me, it's a little bit like what you 
described when we first started to talk today, it's the butterflies in my stomach for me. It's like I get so excited. I can hardly tether myself to the ground because here's the thing about third chakra, which is your gut instinct and how that's related to creativity is that at least for me, and this is what I I encourage people to pay attention to in everything I teach. When you start getting that third chakra gut instinct that something's right and you can hardly stay inside your body, it's always going to work out. Always. I'm getting chills telling you this. And so I've had it happen over and over in my lifetime where I looked at something on the design wall or on the table or literally 18 months ago, I woke up in the, and I thought, we need to sell this house. And it was the beginning of COVID. Who sells a house? But I wanted to be closer to my daughter who lived in Austin and I was still in San Antonio. And four hours later, a realtor called me out of the blue and said, I'm representing a client who drove past your house and he loves it. Is it for sale? Wow. Now, it's not a perfect story because he didn't buy it. He turned out to be a total pain, but it motivated us to get the house ready, get the photographs taken, repair the electrical system, the sign in the yard. So 30 days from start to finish, the house was sold. And I hadn't even planned to sell the house. I mean, I wanted to, but I couldn't, I couldn't mobilize. And so from a creative standpoint, that's how it is in the studio, which is why I want to tie those two things together because I know they sound disjointed. But I think when you start really trusting your creative instincts, which we all have, and we, we could have fallen away from being comfortable or recognizing them, but when we get back in touch with that, all kinds of things can happen that might not have happened if we hadn't been paying attention. Mm-hmm. What do you tell somebody, uh, you know, of your student? I want to talk a little bit more in a bit about creative strength training and how all that works. But just while we're here, what do you tell people that you're working with when they, when you're having this discussion, you're talking about the gut feeling and you're telling them it always works. I mean, that all, I got the little goosebumps when you said that, that felt really true to me. And um, uh, I also have experiences where I'll get a big overwhelming knowing like that, that just feels just feels true, just feels right. But it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense on paper. It doesn't make sense. And I've had, you know, I've had experiences with what I call source or my soul or whatever, where I'll hear, like not often, but where I'll hear a voice come in. And sometimes when I've in a big moment like that, I'll hear like, don't do the math, just, you know, keep going, <laughs> don't do the math. And so that is kind of a little bit of a mantra for me is when I have a big gut feel, I'll say, don't do the math. But, but for somebody who's really struggling with, just contacting that source of intelligence within them for maybe the first time in their life. And it really doesn't make sense. You know, you, you, you probably, you've had a lifetime of following your gut and the, and the, and the rebel working together with the gambler. And it's worked out enough times where you're, maybe you have some sort of comfort in it's a comfortable place for you to be in the unknown, but for somebody who it's really uncomfortable to be in the unknown and they're really looking at how can I, follow these instincts and trust them. What do you, what do you tell them? Well, and that's absolutely something that that's the elephant in the room. If we don't talk about that, because we're, you're talking to somebody who's older now. Mm -hmm. I didn't trust those instincts in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So I I think a lot of things 
didn't happen because I didn't trust that they could happen. And it's really hard. And I'm not talking. I I totally get it. We live in the scariest time in my lifetime. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what age you are. If you're older, you're scared of a whole bunch of stuff. And if you're your age, you're scared of other stuff. And if you're younger, you know, we've all got our own stuff that we're terrified to, to witness to. And so I think we have to start in, I think there are two things, you know, I talk a lot about, and I, I, I know I keep bringing this back to creativity, but I, th- I, I think of creativity as having four cornerstones and one of them is clarity. And when we, one way to, to begin to get in touch with that, when that seems so, so foreign and so nonsensical is to begin to notice, first of all, you know, it's not going to disappear or go away just because it takes a while to get in touch with it. This takes time. And when and you say part, it, you mean creativity, that intelligence. Yeah, that yeah. intelligence is not going to disappear just because you're not using it. Right, right. So you, there's no deadline. So I think it's really valuable to begin by beginning to notice what your preferences are. If we can get some clarity around what our preferences are, how we like to use our time, what we would prefer not to be doing, and sometimes we still, it's what I think of as negotiable versus non-negotiable. Some things are not negotiable. Most of the time, people of a certain age have to go to school. Right. People of another age probably have to have a job or some means of income. If I have a cat, cleaning the cat box is not negotiable. (laughs) That's a good example. (laughs) But there's a lot of negotiable time. And if we can think about how we would like to redirect or rechannel our preferences based on the amount of negotiable time we have, sometimes it helps us settle down. Right. And what, but what I mean by settling down is that then maybe we become more able to hear that small voice that you've described. We're, we're, we begin to notice better how our bodies are reacting to the feelings or the ideas that are coming up. And I think that's the start of beginning to, to get in touch with that. But the second component, which is also a cornerstone of creativity, in my opinion, is community. And community means that we do the best we can, and it's especially been hard with the lockdowns. We do the best we can to find people who will be a support system for us and to whom we can be a support system in return. Mm-hmm. And those people are the people who will flourish us with comments. I know it's not usually, that's not a, usually flourish isn't used quite like that, but when you're flourishing, it's because other people believe in you and they're not stingy in their support and they're not judgmental either. And I have a huge judge archetype. So it's taken me a while to come to terms with that one, but the best thing you can do when you have a, a big judge is to realize that the opposite of being judging is being fair. 
and or an extension of being judging is being fair and that we want to be fair to ourselves and we want to hang with other people who are fair to each other and fair to us so that it becomes a a really reliable, trustworthy support system where we can settle into being authentic. And when, when we can settle into that or just begin to settle into and experience that, and some people have never had that experience. Uh, yeah, yeah. But when we can figure out ways to start going there or heading there, then I think it becomes easier to uh, trust some of the ideas that bubble up and begin to trust the instinct, if that makes sense. This episode of Creative Genius is brought to you by Morning Moon Nature Jewelry. Instantly familiar, yet unlike anything you've ever owned, this extraordinary handcrafted heirloom jewelry is famous for its incredible detail of actual textures from nature. Get 15% off your first order and feel the wonder. Use coupon code CREATIVEGENIUS at lovemorningmoon.com. When we feel creative, we feel in charge of our lives. Mm-hmm. And actually, I interviewed for my program this morning, I talked to Rosalie Dace, who's a South African quilt maker and teacher and a, an amazing human being. You would love talking to her sometime. And she quoted Kay Facet, who is a mainly a colorist, but a quilter. And, you know, Kay has done everything. Yeah. And Kaif, the quote was that, um, and see how this all fits together? (laughs) I taught her and now I can share it with you. I love it. Uh, You should never judge what you're making because just the fact that you have created something that didn't exist before should be enough. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that's that's paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. But that's what creativity as the lifeblood because I agree with you, it fuels everything. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that it's been co-opted in the same way that making art has been co-opted, if you don't mind me saying so. And co-opting creativity and making, as you think you alluded to, making through whatever means, some people feel as though they could never be creative and others feel they've got a corner on the market. That's that only divides us. Where, where's the, where did that come from? What's the and what's that purpose serving? Who is that serving to believe that? To believe that the, some, I, people this, have yeah. and some people don't. Yeah, and you know, I talked to. I used to sell my work at a really busy public market and talk to you know hundreds of people a day and for many years, de- a decade. I talked to a lot of people who would come up, you know, tourists from all over the world and people from Vancouver. And one of the first things that people always say to me in in almost any environment when I tell them that I'm an artist is they sort of have this sort of soft glaze over. um, And it's a sadness. I didn't realize it right away, but it's a sadness. And there's this sort of whisper of like, Oh, I wish I could be an artist, but I'm just, I'm just no, I'm just no good. Or I don't have that skill or, and uh, I talk about this a lot because it's the whole reason that I'm starting this work. Mm -hmm. That to me, I believe that that wish is actually creativity saying, um, hi, right here, <laughs> let me out. But, but, and I'm not going to put a percentage on it because I have no idea. The vast majority of people that I come into contact with are of the belief that they are not creative. They could never be creative. They weren't born that way. 
they're just mathematical or scientific or they have, there's this sort of belief structure around creativity where we, there, certain people are excluded. And if we're saying that creativity is actually the intelligence that brings everything to life, how could anybody possibly be excluded? And imagine the kind of pain on a cellular level you must be experiencing to believe with your unconscious thoughts, even at that level, that you are not part of that. Like, because you talk about community being one of the cornerstones of creativity, ha- having, believing that you don't belong to that community. I mean, that's, and that's why I say, I feel like it's why we're glitching. It's why everything that's wrong is wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, not that I want to spend too much time figuring out like, well, why did this happen? Because I feel like that's sort of a waste of time. But how is it happening so that we can stop it from happening? How is it that we come to believe that? And and who's it serving? Who's who? Who does that belief serve? Because you know, I'm I'm of the belief that you don't you don't believe something or do something unless you're getting something out of it. What are we getting out of this belief that we're not that we don't have access to creativity? Some of us. Well, I think that we are. Um... Unfortunately, as human beings, and I don't want to spend a lot of time analyzing it either. I'd rather fix it. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Uh, I think it happens partly because human beings, and this is really even the bigger question, sort of the way that many of us are brought up revolves around a scarcity economy instead of um, an economy of abundance. And I know sometimes those are trite phrases that people just throw around, but I think the other thing that human beings do, which is probably some leftover remnant of, you know, the the original human beings who had to compete to survive. Mm-hmm. I think that we're hardwired, unfortunately, sometimes to compete. And yeah. And that's one of the things that makes some people want to claim claim it all for themselves. It's a scarcity mentality, like, well, if I don't get all this over here, I'll never have enough. When the fact is that there's plenty to go around on all kinds of levels, and people are talking about this globally all the time right now. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I think we have to, that would help here, actually one of the ways we could fix this would be if we stopped putting such narrow parameters around what creativity is. Because when I have people like that in my own programs and I say, well, tell me a little bit about what you're, what you did before you came here. Well, I was an accountant or I was this, or things that seem very far removed. What we're really saying, which is um, faulty thinking, human beings can get a faulty wiring going. And the more you think it, the more true it seems to become. Mm-hmm. And I think the faulty thinking here is that the only place creativity exists is for people who paint and sculpt at the most base level. And, you know, one of the things that got me really serious about studying all of this 15 years ago is that I enrolled in a um, creativity coaching program with a really famous creativity coach. And there was a reading list. And one of the assignments was that you had to pick six books and read them and do book reports on them. I mean, it was a fairly traditional kind of a program. 
And I went through this reading list that had 20 books on it. They had all been written by men. Mm-hmm. And most of them were at least 10 years old already. And most of them were geared toward business. And that was such a wake-up call. Yeah, I love men and I don't want to set gender. I don't really want to bring gender into this as a weapon. But I do. It did make me think, oh, my gosh, there's so much more to this than that. Creativity is everywhere in my experience. I have adult students all over the world, men and women, coming at it from all different perspectives. And we've never, nobody's ever failed. Mm -hmm. It's in everybody. You just have to, and I I say this, if if you think you're not creative, it's only because no one has been patient and gentle enough with you to show you how to reconnect with the creativity that was always in you. Because we all have a child archetype. And the child is by nature joyful and exploratory and non-judging. And we all came into the world with that. So we all had it at the beginning. And if we're out of touch with it now, we can get back in touch with it again. I, I, I agree. I, it's, I was walking the dog this morning and just thinking about, you know, I, I'm often thinking about creativity and what it is, you know. And I was just thinking it's not. It's not that anybody has ever become disconnected from creativity. It's that they believed a series of thoughts that made it look that way. Mm-hmm. And we just have to unlearn and find ways to. And what you were saying about um, all the books that you read during that program reminded me of a podcast. I, and I can't remember the woman's name, but uh, she is. Um, she writes a lot about uh, ancient wisdom traditions and. Uh, the feminine, the divine feminine, the divine masculine, and she said something in my ear on the pod on the podcast on Sunday that blew my mind a little bit around what would a temples imagine if a te- like all the temples have been built by masculine energy over like right and all of the main religions it's always for the most part been the men that have built the te- and what would temples have looked like and how would we relate to um devotion and, and religion if temples, for example, had been built by women. Mm-hmm. And it blew my mind. I never even thought like how would we relate to the divine and all those things differently. And I and it made me think of that with creativity. How would if women had been the ones who were writing all the books and leading the way and being the gatekeepers, would there even have been gatekeepers the same way? Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's why I'm so excited about what's happening now, because I feel like there is this conversation where we're saying, okay, hold on a minute. That's great. We've done it that way for all these years. Let's let's look at it a different way now. Let's look at approaching it. And I love your idea about widening the parameters around how we define creativity, because it, it isn't just painting and sculpting and or even cooking or I mean it's it's breathing and love and it's it's all of it. Yeah. Yeah. We have to find well, you know, when you're a parent. You have to find creative ways to engage with your kids. And when you have aging parents, it goes a lot more smoothly if you figure out creative ways to engage with them. And when you have a difficult coworker, you're not using psychology. You're using your creative instinct when you figure out a way to, to make life smoother with them. Absolutely. And when, you know, I need to get from point A to point B and the road is closed, I've got to use my, a map, map quest might help, might some of the opposite direction by mistake, but one way or another, every single decision that we make 
has the opportunity to be driven by the creative impulse. Absolutely. That's why it's what you refer to it as. That's why it's the energy behind everything. And we don't think of it that way at all. We, Like I've said, we just pigeonhole it. And then we dismiss ways that we're already being creative. And when we dismiss that in ourselves, we diminish who we are. And when we diminish who we are, then we lose that connection to the joy that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And the capacity to access the internal GPS system that is available right. to us through creativity. Right. That's the exactly. other thing, right? Is that it, that connection actually gives us the, all the answers, like you said this at the beginning, all the answers that you ever come up with from your gut are always hundred percent trustworthy. When yeah. I think about half, I was going to say half, but I'd say 99% of the things that come from my mind are, they don't have that sort of trustworthy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I want to talk about uh, your, your book, Creative Strength Training, but before we do, I wanted to just go back to the other two cornerstones of creativity? Because you were talking about um, clarity and community being two of them. What are the other two? I, I see them in, in a progression, to tell you the truth. The first one is curiosity. Okay. Because curiosity is another one of those things that we can cultivate. Sometimes, for a lot of people, curiosity got shut down early because parents got tired of it or it was threatening. And so the curiosity gets squelched and then we forget as adults how much joy we can get from curiosity. So if we can reignite our curiosity or expand whether how curious we are, you know, Nancy Crow is a very, very well-known quilt maker who really founded the art quilt movement in her own way. And one thing I loved about being around Nancy Crow whenever I was teaching for her was that she was constantly curious and constantly asking people questions about who they were and how they functioned and curious about all kinds of stuff, outdoor, you know, everything. And it was such a great role model. So curiosity is the first one. And when we're curious, that leads to the clarity that I mentioned, because we get clear, you can be curious about a lot of stuff, but you're not going to like it all. Mm -hmm. So then you're clearer about what you like or don't like. Mm -hmm. And when you have developed that sort of clarity, then you begin to develop a certain self-confidence that you might not have had before. So confidence is the third one. And when you're more confident, then you feel more capable to reach out and find a community. And you, you're willing to be pickier about who's in that community without being judgmental. Because of the confidence that you got exactly. from, yeah, that's beautiful. It's a very elegant way of looking at it. I really like that. Yeah. And I, I, again, just going back to the intention of creativity, I feel like it's doing all this for joy, like you said, but also not for just our own individual joy. It's, it's no. for that. It's for other, like I've seen, I've seen musicians almost leave their bodies on stage and have the music come through them. And I realized, oh, that's happening with you over there for me over here. And it's all about <laughs> We're, this is re we're relational like that's yeah. that's why this is all happening <laughs> yeah, exactly and uh, I have weekly meetings in this in this program that I run and we've been talking about the servant which is another archetype and talking about how serving can be a joyful service or it can be servitude which is not necessarily joyful and one of the participants in that discussion said which I loved I found out a long time ago that when I'm happy, my husband is happier, my kids are happier, my friends are happier. So now I feel as though as part of my service, 
I have a responsibility to seek joy and be happy myself because it helps everybody. I love that. And it's not selfish. It's It's self-care. Yeah. I have a very dear friend who's also a tremendous coach uh, who I hope to bring onto the podcast soon. And he talks about being self-full as opposed to being selfish. Because I think, you know, a lot of us are shamed as children, not only for our curiosity. I was definitely shamed. You know, I I was interested in everything. I wanted to learn printmaking. I mean, I'm talking about when I was like 10 years old, I wanted to do printmaking. I wanted to do textile stuff. I wanted to do sculpture. And I was my, like, I wanted to do it all. And I remember my mom getting kind of annoyed with me of like, you just, you have to pick something. You're, you're never going to be good at one thing if you can't pick. And so I kind of was like, for many years, carried the shame around about like, oh my, I shouldn't. And then I realized like, no, it's, that's one of the amazing things about me is that I'm curious, you know, but I had to heal that in my own way. And Yes. And I, uh, yeah. And I think that it's, um, yeah, it's just one of those things that you have, it, it comes with age and it comes with, with realizing, mm-hmm. yeah, that you do have to live for yourself. Well, and it comes from doing research and reading and listening to podcasts as you've been describing so that you can begin to recognize, because, you know, if we live in a vacuum, we never realize how many gorgeous, wonderful things there are out there. And So that's another reason to be curious because it helps us discover all kinds of ways of thinking that might never have occurred to us. And I heard another wonderful quote this week that was something in effect of you can, changing your behavior will change your thinking sooner than changing your thinking will change your behavior. You can think all the time about it, yeah. but if you just get started and if you are exposed to a lot of other ways of of thinking, then you can realize that maybe what it's like prejudices. You can grow up with terrible prejudices within a family tribal environment. And if you don't ever get outside that environment, you don't even realize that that's that's not right. Right. And so this is where we have a, a responsibility, a creative responsibility to pay attention and be as engaged with the world as we can be so that we have a chance to test our ideas against the other, you know, gazillion ideas that are out there in order to figure out our preferences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what would you, yeah, that's, I'm kind of seeing a little bit of like um, some polarity there with like the need to go in and be led by your internal intelligence or your gut. And then also you could you could just kind of get lost in that world if you don't come back out and then be relational. And so how do you kind of cultivate that, you know, a relationship between your gut and the outside world? And oh, that's really that's a really good question. Um well, I don't know whether this will help, but this is what popped in my mind. I think it's really important to draw the distinction between the fact that we as human beings are incredibly self-absorbed and that's for reasons that have rooted in survival instinct and then being aware that everybody is self-absorbed, which means that there is this huge impersonal quality to how we relate to each other (laughs) because what that it's a total freedom to recognize that for the potential that it has because it means that we can drop the belief that people are saying and doing things to hurt us 
or to impact us in a negative way. And we can cut other people a lot of slack because we can accept that they're probably self-absorbed too. Right. It's a paradox because as soon as you start recognizing that you are self-absorbed and that everybody else is self-absorbed too, then you're no longer self-absorbed as much. Yeah, you're free, free from that, that you're yeah. not tethered to that yeah. system yeah. anymore. It's so true. <laughs> you can step back, you can step back and think, you know, somebody can say something or I mean, people get upset just looking cross thinking somebody's looking cross-eyed at them. I know. This is the main issue with people who experience road rage is that yeah. sometimes, sure, sometimes there's some obvious infraction. But 90% of the things that we take offense at as human beings. It's a lot of projection meant that way. Yeah. yeah. They were never meant that way. Yeah. And the sooner we can drop the burden of carrying that around, the lighter we feel and the more able we are to be loving, you know, my three life strategies are compassion and kindness and acceptance. And I have not automatically been that way. I've had experiences in the past where people would have said I was a bitch on wheels. And I was because I hadn't gotten a grip on any of this yet. And I think it's important to admit that that's not for shock value. We all have experiences like that in our past where we were unenlightened. And the more research and reading and the more I listened to that impacted me, the more enlightened I became, the more I saw the shadow side of my behaviors, the more I could choose intentionally these ways that I want to approach life and the people around me. And that made it much easier to adopt this impersonal attitude toward the things that are happening, but also to be very aware because it's also a boundary issue to be very aware that I'm entitled to healthy boundaries and I'm entitled to my own personal creative vision. And I'm entitled to think about those entitled. Maybe that's not that maybe it's a natural. I don't know. That's a word thing we could, we could go over, but in any event, I know what you're saying. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I think about um, <laughs> that. It was making me think about that quote dance. Like nobody's watching. Yeah. And uh, nobody is watching really. <laughs> I mean, and when they, and when they are, when you, when you create a piece of artwork or a piece of music or a piece of writing, that really hits somebody and in the heart and there's a, and there's that mm-hmm. you're in that, you're in that flow together. Mm-hmm. That's the only time it really matters that somebody that you have somebody's attention. All the, I think that's what you're saying is that all the other times you're free to just let go of mm-hmm. their expectations of you, their expectations of art, their expectations of writing, yeah. whatever it is, like you're, you're free at any given time. Yeah. It's kind of bringing us, um, to some of the things that you talk about in creative strength training and uh, which is a terrific book. And thank you for writing it. I'm, I was really happy to have so many of the tools that you provided in that book that I did find them really useful. And I wanted to share that with the listeners, because I feel like if you're, if any of this stuff is something you want to work on, I feel like that would be a great place to start, but it isn't just a book now. It's also uh, an online community, right? That you've created. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that and how it works and what it is? Sure. Sure. It's uh, I'm very emotionally attached. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, so I was thinking, it's it's as important to me. This community is as important to me as my granddaughters, oh. in a different way, obviously. Um, but 
basically the the history of it is that uh, I'm sorry. Um, Please don't be sorry. Somebody used to say, if Jane didn't cry once, you didn't get your money's worth. (laughs) (laughs) I've always kind of been that way. And I've never really been too embarrassed by it because I think a lot of people have that inside and and it's a relief to know that somebody can express it and be okay with it. So I'm also, I'm just like you that way. I, I'm leaky. I'm a very leaky person too. (laughs) I digress. Anyhow, the book came first. And then once the book came out, um, I've worked a lot on various projects with my daughter, Zena, and she's very tech uh, oriented and also very artistic. And so I kind of conned her into helping me set up a 10 week class that was online. And so we did this 10 week class online and we had a very nice turnout, lots of interest in it. So the year that we introduced that we ran it several times and I actually went on a three month road tour promoting the book that summer. This was in 2016. And what I realized was when I talked about the book, there were always people in the audience who weren't there because they thought they were artistic or creative. They were there because somebody dragged them along. Mm-hmm. But they were some of the people who responded most vigorously to what I had to say and were excited about it. So. I went back home and we started talking about how we could expand it into a larger uh, scale community, which has happened over the past four years, five now. And so it starts at the beginning of the year and every month, all year, we have, uh, I write essays about an individual archetype. I write about creative process. I write tutorials that are specific ways of how to do things art techniques. Uh, We have what we call the creative eye challenge, which is people looking for a particular, like this year, it's all about balance and composition. And so I might throw out um, asymmetrical balance and people send in pictures. And last year, because of COVID, we had time on our hands. Every out of town job I had was canceled. Uh So I was home and we decided that we would start Zoom meetings. It was so popular. Now we do Zoom meetings three times a month. And we also last year decided, gee, wouldn't it be fun to have an online exhibition? And so we did two online exhibitions last year, and we just finished an online exhibition, which is, here's the thing, no competition. Everybody's included. If you send me a picture, it's in. And that's beautiful. We have been able to create this literally. all kinds of I get I get emails, people correspond with each other. It led to forming topical groups, which we have 22 topical groups, everything from um, digital printing to botanical printing to an embroidery enthusiasts group. And so we have these smaller groups of 10 or 12 people who meet once a month. And, and the bottom line of what's happened with creative strength training, because the underlying purpose was literally to strength train that creative muscle that we've been, that creative energy, to tap that creative energy. Because I think with daily practice, you can strengthen that in the same way that an athlete goes to the gym. And you know this from the book. And I have seen it transform lives, which is why I feel so emotional about it. Because you would think that everyone would see 
the value of what I'm saying intrinsically and not have any issue with it. But we all are carrying around issues. And we are able to confront those issues within the context of this group through the essays and the responses to the essays and the sharing. We have a Facebook page people can be part of if they don't mind doing Facebook. But in general, I just feel as though it's my mission for the rest of my life, really, to facilitate this creative strength training process because of how it does what we've been talking about all Mm. during this whole hour, which is it it alerts people to that third chakra intuitive hit. It encourages them to pay attention to that. It puts them in a safe space with other people who are willing to tell the truth. And that is the tone that I've always set. And it's remarkable that you could build something that, that was so powerful emotionally for so many people in a in an online environment, because I never would have thought that anything online could have done that if I hadn't witnessed this myself right here, right now. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm not part of that community yet, but I, I do, I, my own relationship with where you can go with online stuff really did change. I mean, as a result of COVID, I think we were, we didn't have any other options. And so we kind of had to dive in that way. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I think the other thing just as you were saying that what your work does, it also acknowledges and validates and provides hope for people who are feeling like something's missing or I'm lost or I can't put my finger on what it is. And you're articulating it. Mm-hmm. You're articulating it. And you're also saying, and here's the plan. Here's, mm-hmm. here's what we're going to do. And I think that that's why I mean, it's what you're doing is so important. It's, it's the leading edge of, I think, where humanity needs to be right now. Mm-hmm. And that's not hyperbole. Like I really feel like this is the work we need to be doing. Um, so in the community, is it um, is it limited to a certain number of people or how does, like if you were listening to this podcast at home right now and you're like, okay, this is something I want to be a part of. How do I get involved in creative mm-hmm. strength training beyond the book, beyond reading the book yeah, and doing, yeah. yeah. Well, I used to worry about that, but I don't worry about it anymore. And, you know, I kind of compare it, and this might sound hokey, but, and it's not, I've got it. The disclaimer is this is not therapy and it is not church, Mm -hmm. but it does have a similar, I guess, because I almost went into the ministry and went to divinity school. I can't help but think of it in a similar way, which is there's never a limit on how many people are allowed to join a congregation. And my job, which is a full-time job, and my daughter, Zena, now works full-time for me as well. Our job, and my husband designs the catalogs for all the exhibitions, um, and another friend does all the work for the setting up the exhibitions. So this is a, this is a serious group of the four of us making this all happen. And that means that we can run lots of different programs and opportunities. And when I write the dozen or so things that I write and and we record the three or four videos that we do and release every single first of every month, wow, um, they're all over the place. And not everybody has to be interested in archetypes in order to be part of it. And not everybody has to want to do photocopy transfers. 
There's always plenty to pick and choose from, and there are no grades and there are no requirements. And so the numbers have steadily grown over the course of the past five years. And all that really does is give us more of an opportunity to set up more more opportunities. And so, for example, these small groups that we didn't even have until last year, we started with 10 topical groups. And this year, the idea of the topical groups was so popular that people kept writing and suggesting a new topic. And then we work with someone who's interested in that topic and train them how to run a Zoom meeting and how to send the invitations. And they put together, they're all volunteers. I have this amazing group of 22 members who've all volunteered this year only. It's not a lifetime commitment because I think that is usually death. (laughs) Um, You know, things should have a beginning and an end. And for that reason, I don't say CST is going to go on indefinitely. In October, Zena says to me, are we going to run it next year? And if third chakra gut instinct says, hell yes, we're going to run it next year, then we will. Right. And if I get to the point where I think, I don't know whether I should do that anymore, then I won't. And right now, we are, and it's on. And so we typically start, um, we open registration in early November, and we have interviews with people who've been in it, and we got a lot of free material. It's on the website now that explains, and there's some YouTube videos that were shared from the program. We don't want any, we're not twisting arms here. We want people to be part of this, who would like to be part of this community and who can see some benefit from it. Because one of the smartest things somebody ever said to me, just literally from a marketing standpoint is you don't have to appeal to everybody. And if you do appeal to people then you probably aren't doing as good a job at what you wanted to do as you thought you were and don't twist arms to get people to be part of it. So I I'm not that kind of person. Anyhow, I'm pretty low key. You know, somebody asked me once for a business card because they wanted to buy a piece in a gallery and I opened my purse and I had uh, five business cards for my Saturn dealership and none for me. <laughs> that sounds like my purse. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wrote my name on the back of the Saturn dealership card. Just hope they didn't think I worked at Saturn. <laughs> Trying to get some commission. <laughs> yeah. Jane reminds us that creativity's MO is joy, and that when we feel creative, we feel in charge of our own lives. She shows us that we can cultivate a relationship with creativity through training and practice, much like athletes train their bodies at the gym. I thought it was worth underlining what she said about how your new relationship with creativity is not going to disappear just because it takes a while to get in touch with it. Cultivating a deep relationship with creativity and learning to trust yourself and your instincts takes time. If you take one thing away from this episode today, I hope it's the inspiration to look for all the ways your own gut is already speaking to you. Courage to follow these whispers, knowing they are never wrong. And I want to leave you with this thought. What would be available to you if you listen just a little more closely to what your gut is whispering to you. And then, what if you acted on those whispers? I have a fun challenge for you. Forward this episode to the first friends that pop to mind right now. Don't overthink it. There's a reason you thought of them. You never know. You might change a life forever. See a picture of my favorite piece of Jane's work 
and find links to her websites, including how to join the creative strength training community in the show notes on katesheppardcreative.com slash creative genius. That's S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D. And remember to tune in in two weeks for part two of this beautiful conversation. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support the show, please consider joining my Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Your support helps make it possible for me to continue bringing you these inspiring conversations with artists every other week. As a Patreon member, you'll have access to things like bonus content, live Ask Me Anything sessions, and even original art sent right to your door. We have an incredible lineup of guests coming up. You won't want to miss a single one. So before you forget, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And I would love it if you'd head over to iTunes to leave the show a review. I love your feedback. It helps me learn how to continue to evolve and improve the show for you. And did you know you can watch full video of most of our episodes? Head over to katesheppardcreative.com slash creativegenius for all the details. Thank you again for listening. May you find and unleash your creative genius.